God is good, isn't he? Helps us trust him in so many ways. Let's have an added word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this morning that we can learn about how you care for us, even in the smallest, even sometimes seemingly insignificant details of life. And yet you encourage us to look at these matters. You encourage us to say, you know what? The Lord has done so much for me. I cannot help but trust him. Guide us to see that we can trust you here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Been out at Lassen National Park, so if I smell of campfire smoke, that's what, I, that's what my cologne is this morning, is campfire smoke. I, I came right from there. Every time we have an anniversary, my wife is typically off for that weekend camping. And so I asked her this year, once again, what do you want for your anniversary? She says, I want to go camping. So they're not here today. They're out camping. In fact, I dropped them off up near Mount Lassen, the base of Mount Lassen, and they're hiking down to the campground right now, even as I speak. So I was amazed that as I was out there this week, I was out there Sunday and Monday backpacking, and then I went out again later Wednesday with my wife and kids just to celebrate our anniversary and the weekend early. But as we were at one ranger-led program, this ranger, at first I thought, oh, this is going to be a dry talk. Uh, the guy didn't have any social skills, and it was just like, oh, he's younger than I am. And, and I'm thinking, well, let's see how this goes. And at first he was very much not very personable, but he tried to be. And he began his lecture with this, I need some helpers. And I thought, oh, great, okay, let's see how this goes. So he gets us all a picture. And my little girl got a picture, and it was a big picture of a bumblebee. And then different people got pictures, and one of them I didn't recognize. It was some kind of fungi, you know? And another one was this, the bunch of red dots. My wife got those pictures. I was like, that's kind of strange. And as he began to hand out these pictures, he said, now here are the rules. We're going to have these individual organisms and creatures be competing with each other. We're going to see which one you think at the end of all of these descriptions is the most significant to our forest life. So he began with a description of a little critter. It was small, had a lot of little hairs on it, small wing, it wasn't small, it was relatively small, small wings, big body. It would go from flower to flower. What do you think it is? Bumblebee, yeah, honeybees aren't necessarily up there as much. And lo and behold, my little girl had that one. So she got up into the front and she's holding this picture in front of her face. She's kind of scared of, of seeing everybody in the crowd. And so she's got this picture there. And this guy begins to describe the bumblebee in ways that, well, frankly, I hadn't heard about before. He described how the bumblebee's hairs were designed in such a way that not only helped it fly, but also helped it survive up there in that altitude. And, it's, and it also, he also mentioned that this bumblebee had a scent gland, if you was a way of leaving a scent behind for the other bumblebees so that they would know, hey, I already, I already took care of that flower. And so he began with the bumblebee, and then he began to go through these other examples, got down to a little purple-colored flower that helps replenish forests. Which one do you think that one is? Up in the high altitudes. Lupin, you know, the silver leaf lupin. And he described how this one was a pioneer plant, how the pioneers loved planting these plants because it would help replenish the soil. It would put nutrients into the soil. Of course, it would hold on to all those nutrients until it died, and then you basically had to plow it under. And the, and the pioneers loved this plant. And he described how this little small purple plant would help the forests, especially the areas that had succumbed to wildfire or had their trees had died off. It would actually replenish the soil enough for the little trees to come up and to take over that forest and to regrow. It helped replenish and bring life. 
And as we got down all the way through all of these small creatures, even the, even the little uh, wood beetle, we, we t- excuse me, the wood ant, the carpenter ant, we t- typically take for granted, but this carpenter ant would get up into the trees at night, and instead of going to sleep, it preys on these uh, cocoon-building little caterpillars that would actually prevent the trees from photosynthesizing. It goes up there, and these trees cannot get rid of all of the, you know, the cocoon and all of that, and so it goes up there and takes its, its you know, jaws, and it begins to cut that open, which, of course, frees up the tree, and it eats everything in there, and it goes back down. That's what it's doing at nighttime. So he went through all of these creatures, and guess which one won the most votes at the end of all of that? A fungi. A fungi. And he described it, and I can't, I can't tell you the name of it. I'm not a scientist, but basically this fungi that actually enables trees to grow and to have life, and they have to be inoculated with this fungi for them to basically continue to survive in those altitudes. And guess how that fungi is spread around? By little rodents that will come and will eat the, 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 this sweet-flavored fungi. Uh, they would grow some things on it, and they would eat those nodules, and it would go around and, of course, defecate and leave those things all around where these trees would eventually be inoculated with this fungi. And, of course, everybody's laughing at that one at the time, and especially the little kids. But as I thought about all those little critters and how if you take one of them out of the system, if you will, or a few of them out of the system, it's almost like they were in this living relationship with each other. Even the smallest levels of that forest that we take for granted, that we look at and think, wow, look how beautiful this mountain is. Look how beautiful these lakes are and these streams and this forest. If it weren't for the smallest things in that forest, we wouldn't have it. It's amazing how God has placed all of those things in their order and they reproduce after their kind and they continue to, to do this whole relationship with seemingly these small matters. Of course, isn't that what life's all about anyway? all the small experiences, all the things that we take for granted that oftentimes in the small things, God is teaching us the most. And I'd like to take you to a story that we looked at last week. I want you to notice that in a seemingly, it seems like a small matter to speak to someone or to just touch somebody in a loving way, God began to do miracles. And not only in this parable that we're going to look at, but in two other parables that followed, small things that brought about life, growth, and hope. If you go to Luke chapter 13, I invite you to turn there with me in your Bible. I'm going to Luke chapter 13, verses 10 and onward. You can feel free to take a pew Bible out and follow me if you like. But in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 and onward, we looked at this story in detail last week about how Jesus was in the business of freeing people, of opening gates, of setting captives free, of showing mercy, even on the Sabbath day. And so here's this woman who'd been coming to church for 18 years. She's been crippled. She's had this tormenting spirit where how she's been looking at nothing but people's feet for 18 years. And Jesus speaks to her when the synagogue ruler didn't even want to see any miracle happen. Jesus speaks to her, touches her, and at the end of it all, he calls her a daughter of Abraham. And basically, she is remade into that beautiful image that he intended for her to be. He touches her and heals her. And you say, well, that's not a parable, is it? Yes, it is. Now, the Greek word for parable, and the reason why I memorized it was because I had to memorize all these little dinky words and vocabulary. Now, and you know what I'm talking about. They have all these vocabulary lists, 
And you're thinking, what good is this, this vocabulary list? This word para, for instance. And the only way I could get that one in my mind was to think of paragraph. Like my teacher would take a green ink pen and on the side of each paragraph, beside each paragraph, they would, he would mark everything that was wrong. You need to change this and that. And I would remember that word para or beside because of, of that Greek class. Jesus uses that word in conjunction with balo, para balo. So beside, that's how I remembered it, and to cast or to throw, to throw beside. So if Jesus points to someone out in the field sowing and he puts beside it now a lesson, what do we call it? It's a parable. A lesson beside a reality. Not necessarily a made-up story either. It could be an object out of nature. It could be a story that just took place. Like the, on the guy on, on the way to Jericho, the Good Samaritan story, we think it's typically a, a made-up story. But there are actually stories that took place in Jesus' day where people were attacked on the road to Jericho. And some believe that maybe he was even taking a story from the headlines of his day and putting a lesson beside it, a parable. So parables can be object lessons, they can be stories that you put a meaning beside it, or they can be an acted out or enacted parable where the very actions of the person delivering that can tell you a lesson beside it. So here's a woman who's basically been in this crippled condition for 18 years. Nobody has taken the time to basically speak those words of encouragement that Jesus speaks or touch her the way Jesus touches her or heal her and restore her as a daughter of Abraham. And what does Jesus do? touches her and heals her. Speaks to her, then touches her. Well, wait a minute. Shouldn't that remind us of some stories of the Old Testament? Where did God first speak? And then when it comes to actually the image of God, the human beings, touch. It goes right back to Genesis, doesn't it? He speaks everything else in creation, but when he comes to human beings, he touches, he molds, he takes Adam out of the dust of the ground and molds him and breathes into his nostrils a breath of life. And so we have this woman being healed. It's a parable. And literally, as your sermon title suggests, we can grow with his touch. That's what happened to her. All bunched down, touches her after talking to her, and she grows. I mean, literally, just comes out of that condition. Stature as a woman of God. So for 18 years, this has been taking place. And you know, when, I, when we read stories of miracles like this, and as a pastor, I know, I've, as my elders and I can attest, we've been to anointing services where people have asked us to come. We've anointed them, and some have rallied and recovered, right? We would say, God's given them a little more time. I've seen others who have been healed, but I have seen lots of situations where somebody has not been healed. So why do I choose to believe that this is actual occurrence in the Bible where somebody was healed? Why, why do I trust that this miracle took place as it's written in here? There are three main reasons. Number one, if we think of everyday life and we look, we look in careful detail, we would see a lot of things have happened to even bring us to this point here. Now, the Bible doesn't record every single detail of everybody's life, does it? You're looking at from Genesis all the way down to Revelation, a huge span of time, and it's not like every day somebody has to rise up and, and walk or somebody every day has to be uncrippled or every day they have to be given their sight for us to believe. These stories have been written down in enough frequency for us to say, you know what? Maybe it doesn't happen every day, but I choose to believe that God can do the impossible in my life. Because look, here's enough instances. It's not 
occurring in such frequency, and except for in some concentrations. In the ministry of Jesus, you find whole villages that are healed. You find people who are wanting to be healed, they're healed. You, you find in Elisha's ministry a lot of miracles taking place. You find some concentrations, but it's, it's not like, as you look at the Bible record, every single thing is recorded so that it says, if you don't have an answer to your prayer where someone's healed or uncrippled, then you're not going along with what happened in the Bible history. There are a lot of times when these miracles, thing, people died. James himself died in the book of Acts. So the first reason why I choose to believe this is taking place is, you know, there's a history of miracles in the Bible of such a frequency that it, it's not unbelievable that it could still happen today. It may not happen every single day, every single moment of our lives. But that's one reason. Another reason I choose to believe that this miracle took place is because of the writings uh, and evidences we find even outside of the Bible. Not just archaeology, naming places and, and locations and rulers of the Bible, but, but even the very man Jesus himself. Josephus mentions, and there's two different versions you can look at, in his writings, that he did miracles. Or in, another, in some rabbinical writings, they thought he was a sorcerer, a deceiver. It doesn't matter how you take it. History attests that there was a man named Jesus, and he did things that got people thinking, out of the ordinary, seemingly miraculous. Could this be the Messiah, was the question. So we have historical evidence, and then the third thing is, as I think of the story of Jesus himself, and he was known as Yeshua in some of the rabbinical writings, but as I look at the story of Jesus himself, the fact that 120 individuals attested to the miracle of miracles, a resurrection. And all you have to do is read the book of Acts, chapter 1. I was reading it this week in my devotions, and I was thinking to myself, this is amazing. You have them on the Mount of Olives, and then you have 120 individuals that are in this upper room there. What has Jesus been telling them about? His words, and it mentions this idea of his, his miracles. These individuals have attested to the fact that the miracle of miracles, a resurrection has occurred. If a resurrection can occur where someone lays down their life and then takes it up again, then how come that person couldn't touch somebody and they'd be healed? If they could literally lay down their own lives, can you do that? I can't do that. I can't just say, I'm going to die today and then tomorrow I'm going to be resurrecting. That's power. And so as I look at those three reasons, you know, it's not inconceivable because of the miracles weren't necessarily happening every single moment of every day, but they happen enough for us to believe. We see the writings of history giving us evidence, not proof, but evidence that miracles took place. And then we have witnesses. And you know what? It only takes, quite frankly, how many witnesses to prove something in court? You all probably watch some of these strange judges on TV. I mean, if you're just slipping through the channel, and, they're like, and the judge is like, well, and giving all the evidence, and there's only one person against each other. But there's enough evidence in the side of one part of that case where the judge rules on to that person's side. That's only one person against one person. 120 people all saying the generally the same thing. That's enough reason to believe, isn't it? And so that's, these are the reasons why I choose to believe that this miracle, this story could take place in my life if God wanted it to happen. It may not be that I'm crippled. I am not crippled. It may be that I struggle with something in my health. It may be that I struggle with something in my finances. It may be that I struggle with something in my family. It doesn't matter. God can help me spiritually, emotionally, physically if I trust him. And I can grow to see that he has touched me in so many ways in my life to even get me to be living, breathing, and thinking today. 
and I still bear the scars of my birth. When my dad punched my mother in the stomach and basically sent her into labor, and then the doctors put too much air into my lungs and burst my lungs. You know, that, that's, that's something that I don't always think about every day. But you all have scars, you all have, you all have experiences where if you were to look back and just reflect on them and say, you know what, God, you, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here today. And so I choose to trust that miracles take place because of also the miracle that's taken place in my life. I am one of these witnesses that God can still change lives. could take some tough guy out of jail and turn him into some preacher guy. Now, come on, guys. Skin my head. Put a muscle t-shirt on me. Put some, some weapons and stuff in my pocket and then look at me wrong and then I'll deal with you. And yet, you, I don't even feel that way anymore. How does that change take place? It's only the touch from the Savior. He's echoed words down through time that have said, you know what, you're more valuable than that. That's not the desire I have for you. In fact, I still remember thinking at times, is this all there is? And that still small voice would say, I've got more planned for you. And I would shrug it off. And so here's a woman who has heard the voice of the very Savior himself, words from him, been touched by him, been healed by him. Isn't she going to continue to trust in him? She praises God in this text. She, she's so happy about it. And whereas the synagogue ruler, of course, gets mad about it. And if you look at verse 17, after he rebukes them, hey, you'll let your animals out, won't you, on the Sabbath day? Care for them, let them get watered, and feed them. And if you look, he calls her a daughter of Abraham. Basically, she's my daughter. In verse 17, when he had said all of this, his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Two groups. Which one am I in? I want to be the one that's delighting and saying, wow, are you kidding me? You, you would do that for me? If you would do that for her, what could you do for me? I'm not crippled, but I'm watching this take place. But I have some things that can cripple me spiritually. Can you help me with those? Imagine just the feelings bubbling up in that audience saying, God, you can do so much. Please help me with what I have to struggle with. Well, he doesn't stop there, does he? You know, typically there's a, there's a break there in most versions of the Bible there. But if you keep going, he, he keeps going on. Jesus then asks the question, what is the kingdom of God like? Uses a word there, like. It, he, you really cannot, in human language, encapsulate the whole kingdom of God, can you? I mean, sit down sometime and try. People have written books on this stuff. PhDs and all kinds of stuff and Greek and all, and all these original languages and tried to be all scholarly about it. And even the simplest books do not encapsulate it. And so he uses the word, the kingdom of God is like something. He's trying to use this finite language, these finite examples to, to bring something to home to his audience. I read in the book Christ Object Lessons, he could find nothing on earth that would serve as a perfect comparison. Nothing. His court is one where holy love presides and whose offices and appointments are graced by the exercise of love. That's the very fabric of his court. We don't even know that, do we? He, cha he charges his servants to bring pity and loving kindness, which is what he showed in this miracle, his own attributes into their office work and to find their happiness and satisfaction in reflecting the love and tender compassion of the divine nature on, on whom all, on all whom they associate. 
So he wants, as he's telling this story here, and he's already enacted the parable. He's already shown, you can grow with my touch if you let me, if you trust me. And now he then says, the kingdom of God is like. Whose kingdom? God. His Father. He's trying to reveal his Father to the world. If you doubt that, read John 5 all the way through John, down through John 17. You'll see him constantly pointing to the Father. My Father's kingdom is like this. A place where love presides. A place where mercy is exercised. A place where you think of the other more than yourself. And then he uses a story to illustrate it. What shall I compare it to? Good question, huh? It's like a mustard seed. And I first read this, I thought, Mustard seed. That's like those mustard greens my wife has out in the garden there. You know, they eventually grow and seed out. That's what I first thought. But we'll come back to that in a moment here. It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his own garden, in the Greek. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. This thing is loaded. I mean, he just, he just threw at us the, the, the huge magnum, if you will. I mean, just this huge force of words. And we read them, and I, and I usually just kind of keep reading on after this. But now I've paused. A seed. Just that simple, small, little word got me thinking. I mean, in Genesis chapter 1, what do we find? God makes all these plants and even the seed-bearing ones it, by his words. It's, he speaks, and there's these beautiful plants who will seed out and reproduce. So it automatically puts you back to creation in a way. And then what else further puts us back towards creation? He planted the seed in his own garden, the Greek says. His own personal garden. This would have shocked his audience. It's like saying, you know what, I live in Happy Valley, and I'm going to plant a huge redwood tree in my front yard. Now, you guys probably do that, right? Some people do that. But for me, who've been on water restrictions, for, it just wouldn't make sense to, to plant this, this tree when I don't have enough water to very keep my garden and other stuff going, let, and my animals, let alone this tree. This huge, now I love redwoods. There's one right out front here. But that would be like saying what he's saying here. In a drought-stricken land, you're planting a tree that needs all this water. Well, how, why do I say that? Because he goes on. This seed became a tree. This isn't just some little mustard green plant. This is, if you look it up on the internet and look at its pictures of it, this is a, a dendron. This is like a, an oak tree out in the middle of Happy Valley. And this is a big oak. It became, from this little seed, this mustard tree. Not just mustard plant, but mustard tree. That would have shocked his audience because that's not something you plant in your own personal garden. You plant fruit trees. You plant vegetables and things and fig trees and things. You're not going to plant this tree in your garden. So he gets their attention, and what's his point? This man plants this. He, he, imagine the, the, the analogy here. He takes the seed, puts it into the ground himself. He's nurturing this plant in his own garden for some amazing purpose. And what is the purpose? What's the text say? Birds of the air perched in its branches. That's a huge purpose, right? Is that something, I mean, does that really stand, ring a bell? Like, what, what are we talking about here? We have a seed which points us back to creation. We have a garden that points us back to God's original garden, right? But I'm not going to get too allegorical with you. There's really one main point here. This guy nurtures this seed until it becomes this huge tree and these birds dwell in its branches. Where do I see 
after creation sometime, a tree growing big and big and having birds perch in its branches. There's not very many places you can find. I, I, I looked. It's Daniel chapter 4. And let's turn there for a moment. Keep your finger here. Let's go over to Daniel chapter 4. This is, anybody back then would have caught some of this language. It's kingdom language. Daniel chapter 4. You can read the whole thing on your own if you'd like to this afternoon, but it says here in Daniel chapter 4, verse 9, I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Daniel chapter 4, verse 9. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a dendron in the Greek. The same exact word you find with Jesus uses over there. That's one, one correlation, isn't it? In the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its tops touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. And that's not the end of the story. Daniel interprets it down in verse 19. Daniel goes and interprets it. And if you go on, read from 19 onward, especially down in verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Verse 24, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against you, you will be driven away from the people and live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of the heaven. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives him to anyone he wishes. He has prospered you. He has been kind to you. He has caused you to grow. This is an amazing parallel, isn't it? You say, well, you're reading too much into the text. Uh, Maybe I'm taking a little homiletical license here, but as I look at the Greek just itself and you start tracing the words that somehow have some parallel to this, this is the one that stands out. He's wanting us to say that the kingdom of God grows by the will of God. It's through his personal touch. It's through him accepting his words, especially back in Luke chapter 13. The context is, here's the very one who gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the very one who created your world. Here's the very one who planted this garden and stuck a tree in it that didn't seem to belong there. And all the birds of the air perched in its branches. Going from a seed to a tree to eventually the same analogy of it growing to the ends of the earth. Let you all unpack some of that later, but I'll tie it together later in the story. But it, could it be clear, though, that it's under God's watchful care and God's provision that he's made, even for Nebuchadnezzar, who grew into this huge tree, through his personal touch, that he wants us to grow as well. You doubt, if you doubt that, go to the description where Jesus says, a kernel of wheat falls into the ground. Unless it dies, then basically it won't bring forth a harvest. He's describing his own ministry, his own death as a seed being planted, and he's wanting these individuals in his audience to accept that. And so we have a woman being touched and restored into the likeness of the image of God, basically unafflicted 
now she's walking. Then you have it going because of this, it's this tree analogy. And then it goes and gets even more personal to some of them. He asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? Luke chapter 13, verse 20 now. It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Another shocker, isn't it? Maybe not to us, because we're thinking of mom in the kitchen making bread or grandma. But yeast and the worship in the kingdom of God? Now, in the, in the bread that was used for the sanctuary, yeast or no yeast? No yeast. Bread used for the Passover, yeast or no yeast? No yeast. So you have this analogy all of us. What did Jesus say about the teachings of the Pharisees? Yeast, right? False teaching. So he takes something that has had a tradition of being pointing to sin or false teaching, and all of a sudden he says it's like the kingdom of God. Now, if that wouldn't shock you in that day, I don't know what else would. It'd be almost like saying, I can't really make any huge comparison to it, but this, this would be a shocker in that day. Just like the tree planted in your personal garden would be a shocker. He's trying to get their attention. The kingdom of God is like yeast. Now, we typically think of those, those sealed packets of yeast, right? You, you open it up and you get this huge amount of yeast. You use a little bit in your bread machine or your, you, you mix it in the dough. We're talking a different method, aren't we? You don't just go to Costco back in the ancient Near East and get some yeast. What are you doing? You've got a lump somewhere, right? The European method. One of, the, one of my uh, teachers was European, and his, his mother and grandmother had this method where you would have basically this, this dough that you would condition, this, this yeast and dough you would condition that eventually you would take a lump out of. Anybody know this method? I, I, I don't, I'm not, it was foreign to me when he said it. I was like, really? We just take yeast and throw it in, right? But this method of somehow taking a, something that you preserved and taking part of it and then now mixing it in with others. And you know how it kind of grows eventually. That's what the kingdom of God is like? Not just a woman, but maybe they would think of their mother making bread, kneading it, making, and watching it grow, and eventually baking it, and, and feeding and sustaining them. That's what the kingdom of God is like? Something so small like this yeast? Do you notice a progression in this text, or is it just me? It's almost like a Hebrew way of thinking versus my Western way of thinking of a cause to effect. We think cause to effect. It's almost like effect. Here's a woman who's been healed. Hey, look, there's this tree here that's been planted. It gives you kind of a hint of how it's going to take place. And what happens to the sin in the yeast? It's made for a good purpose. Now reverse it then. You got your sin. How, is it going to, how are you going to get from that to the basically this restored relationship with God, this beautiful touch of Jesus where you're totally restored into his image? It's the tree in the middle, isn't it? Am I the only one that sees that? Murray, you've been spending too, many time, too much time in the hills. It's pretty clear that these shocker statements were the main key. The yeast, this mustard tree, not just the seed, and then a restored woman on the Sabbath day. Day of all days, it represents the cross. All three of these point to the cross. Analyze it in your own study. You'll see what I'm saying. All of them point to how we can grow with his touch. Because it was Jesus who molded and fashioned humanity and does so for that woman. It was Jesus who calls her a daughter of Abraham, basically causing her to grow in his faith. It was Jesus who challenges his audience with these parables and says, basically, if you really want to be like this woman, then, then accept the kingdom of God. Trust me. I'll take 
that which was basically seen as sin in you and I will make it into something glorious. I'll take and basically show you that I have personally planted a seed in your heart that will grow into my kingdom. You'll go all the way to my kingdom and then you will be restored physically if it be my will. For you, to, you, you will follow my will and you will be there. So it's amazing. And when we look at the cross, we know we've been touched through Jesus by the Father on the cross, haven't we? He dies on this tree. The kingdom of God, we know according to Revelation 12, was taken from the devil effectively at the cross. I mean, if there was any other doubt after the cross in anybody's mind, especially in heaven, it didn't remain after the cross. And that's why the Bible says, woe to you inhabitants of the earth, because we have to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony now. We have to see Jesus in every text. And I've been told as a preacher from Genesis to Revelation, all these texts should be seen from the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. So I see the cross all over the place here. How the cross can take something that symbolized sin and turn it into something good. How the cross can take and bring us back to that beautiful garden with a tree that really gets us back there and the cross can restore us into sons and daughters of Abraham, sons and daughters of God. So as I read this this week, two questions really came to my mind. Jesus, I know I'm in this text somewhere. What do I need to trust you with? I may not be crippled like that lady. I may not know much about mustard trees, let alone mustard greens. My wife knows about all of that. But I want to grow under your touch in your personal garden. Jesus, I know I've been sinful. Maybe seen by some as lost. I was called a lost cause. But you want to use me for something good. Jesus, what do I need to trust you with for me to be on the kingdom side of these parables, to grow under your touch? And then another question that came to my mind was, Jesus, what area of my life needs your healing touch right now? They need you to need to, to basically change me, to help me grow to heal me? Those are the questions that came to my mind. I'm not sure what comes to your mind as, as you even hear this text. But I want to invite you to do something before we sing our closing song. And I went ahead and wrote those questions down in my bulletin. Right on the back there. Not much room on your bulletin anywhere. But I wrote question number one up here. I'd invite you to do the same thing. And what I'm going to do with my questions is this afternoon I got my journal up in the hills. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to rewrite that in my journal. Jesus, what do I need to trust you with? And then I'm going to give myself half a page or a page. I'm going to pray over that question and say, God, is there something I need to really trust you with right now? Jesus, I've seen the story. Is there something I really need to trust you with right now? So I invite you to write that question down. Jesus, what do I need to trust you with right now? And in your own personal time, to spend that time letting him, through the still small voice, through scripture, answer that question for you. And then number two, I wrote it down here at the bottom of my thing here. Jesus, what area of my life needs your healing touch right now? So number two, I wrote down, Jesus, and I'm talking to him, what area of my life needs your healing touch? You say growing touch, right? Well, if he has to heal something before it Right, grows, right? Sometimes there's some wounds. You've got to have those healed before you can even grow any further. 
So Jesus, what area of my life needs your healing touch right now? And just take those two questions. What do I need to trust you with? What area of my life leads to your healing touch? And just spend some time with him. And you will be, maybe you will be surprised, maybe you won't, but he will actually instruct you as to what those areas are. And then you will see yourself in the story. So yes, I'm amazed by the seemingly small things, the words and the touch of a person, the seed that became a tree, this yeast that became a huge a loaf in and of itself, seemingly small. But isn't that what God's all about? Touching us and growing us day by day? Our closing song is to that effect. It mentions, just when I need him, Jesus is there. I invite you to take your hymnals out you'd like to or sing it up on the screen number 512 just when i need him whatever your need is let jesus touch that need and help you grow closer to him number 512 just when i need him if you'd like to stand feel free Just when I need him, Jesus is near. Just when I falter, just when I fear. Ready to help me, ready to cheer. Just when I need him most, just when I need him most, just when I need him most, Jesus is near to comfort and cheer. Just when I need him most, just when I need him, Jesus is true, never forsaking all the way through, giving for pleasures anew just when I need him most just when I need him most just when I need him most Jesus is here to comfort and cheer just when I need him most just when I need Jesus is strong, bearing my burdens all the day long, giving a song just when I need him most, just when I need him most, just when I need him most. Jesus is here to comfort and cheer just when I need him most. Just when I need him, he is my all. Answering when upon him I call, tenderly watching lest I should fall. 
Father in heaven, thank you so much for sending Jesus to not only speak words of comfort to that woman and heal her and touch her, helping her grow in that touch, but also these two parables that remind us that our sin needs to be taken and made into something good. And that can only happen to that beautiful tree that you have planted and nurtured, and you want that to grow in each one of our hearts until that day when we see you face to face and you restore us completely, physically, spiritually, emotionally to that beautiful stature of children of God. Pray your guidance to that end. In your name, Jesus. Amen.